Amen, friends. If you would, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. At this time, I'd like to invite all of the kids out this side door with Miss Joy. They will be back for communion. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm just uh, getting back into town yesterday. Excuse me, Friday night, I was gone taking a class, and it's good to be home, and it's good to be back. Uh, fun fact, this is my two-year anniversary of moving here with my family this weekend, so that was pretty exciting. Um, Thank you. I don't need applause, but I appreciate it. I love you too. It's good to be home, and it's, I, I missed y'all. And uh, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, but before we look at that, uh, I have to tell you that this is, by most scholars' opinions, uh, this is the strangest, hardest passage in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a great scholar named D.A. Carson, and he says that uh, if, if the pastor makes a lot of mistakes, as long as the people know that he loves them, they will forgive almost anything. But if the congregation doesn't know that their pastor loves them, they'll forgive almost nothing. And uh, I guess when I come to this passage, the reason I mention that is this is going to be really weird, okay? I just want to get that on the open. This is a strange passage. You may have never thought about anything in this passage before. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of strange things. This passage does not lend itself to an opening cute story, three sub points, and a closing poem at the end. Okay, so the format's going to be weird, uh, but um, if you've ever been on, like, if you've been on one of the new rides, you know, at a theme park, instead of having railing, now they have, like, a linoleum floor, and, like, everybody gets into a cart, and you just kind of, like, move a little bit, and it's like a free-moving ride. Has anyone been on those kind of amusement rides? Well, you're about to be on one of those, because there's no real railing today. It's just, we're going to be moving, and I don't know where we're, I know where we're going, but you may not, and we're going to turn in some weird places, but know that I love you, and it's about to get weird, but it's going to make sense. And I have, the Bible has important things to say, but all, all that to say, um, you may have never heard a, pass, a sermon on this passage before, but you're about to, and it's about to get strange. And whatever you think it's saying, it's probably going to be stranger than that. So without any further ado, let's go to First Peter chapter 3. We're really looking at verses 18 through 22, but I feel like we need to look at verse 17 just as a reminder. So let's start in verse 17 of First Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter tells his sojourners, the elect exiles of God's people, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him." Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated? And let's keep that Bible open because you're going to need it. Let's pray. And Father, we pray that we would see your son's victory in this passage. And Lord, that we would take comfort that you have overcome everything in this physical world and in the spiritual realm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, just as a quick reminder, right, Peter is writing to Christians who he calls sojourners, people who are not full citizens of this world. Uh, We don't have a true home here. We seek a city that is to come, as Hebrews talks about, right? So we are elect, we are beloved by God, we are God's chosen people, as he calls us in his very first sentence. We are God's elect, his chosen, his beloved, and yet we are also elect exiles, meaning we don't quite fit into this world, right? And so Peter is telling his original audience that no matter where they are in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, there's going to be some things where they just don't fit into the culture in which they live. And of course, Peter's message is the same thing to us. We have to remember that we are elect exiles in this world. And of course, this idea that God loves us, even though we don't quite fit in this world and have the world's acceptance, this message, right, is meant to humble us, right? Because we're supposed to think like Peter, who even though we have denied Christ, just like Peter did, even though we have failed to live by God's standards, even though we have failed to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God still chose to love us and enter this world. Uh, He loved us despite ourselves so that we might become the image bearers of his son, Jesus. So the message of the gospel both humbles and it lifts us up. It's not meant to make you hate yourself. It's meant to make you run to Christ and see his incredible mercy for you. Uh, We serve a loving and gracious God who became a man, Jesus, endured the cross, suffered for us. Uh, You know, think about in Jesus' suffering, what did he suffer He had the betrayal of a close friend, Judas. He had the world's rejection. The people who were the most religious at his time couldn't stand him, and they cried for his crucifixion. And of course, he had to face the loneliness of being abandoned by his own disciples. Even Peter, at one point, ran from Christ after he cut off Malchus's ear, right? Peter abandoned him while he was being arrested and persecuted and put to the cross, so despite all, everything that Jesus suffered for us, he took the punishment to satisfy God's wrath against sin and to bring us into God's presence. We never have to fear God's punishment or God's wrath against us because when we confess Jesus as Lord, Jesus has taken the punishment we deserve, right? Our adoption papers are sealed in his blood. So, you know, Peter knew this message of the gospel. Uh, you know, it's always a great reminder to ask ourselves, do we know the gospel message? Do we know this truth? And I don't just mean intellectually, I mean to your very core, do you know the power of the gospel, why Jesus did this? Uh, Peter keeps reminding us of the gospel, right? That's where he goes in verse 318. Did you see that? Uh, Look with me at verse 318. Peter reminds us again that Jesus suffered, even though he was righteous for us. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and me, (laughs) that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, Friends, I know many of you, uh, you know, know the gospel message and have heard this before. And if you've been with me for the last two years, you know, I'm really like a one hit wonder. Every sermon somehow ends up about the gospel and Jesus, right? (laughs) And hopefully that's what every sermon ends about is the gospel message. But to leave it there, Uh, that the gospel is primarily and only about your salvation and my salvation is not the full extent to what the Bible says the gospel is and what the gospel accomplishes. Yes, the gospel is about how you and I as sinners can be made in a right relationship with God and enjoy eternity with him forever. But there's more to the gospel 
than just our salvation. Because the gospel also has in view Jesus's proclamation, not to just sinners in this world, but actually to all of the entities, the powers and the authorities and the demonic forces, the powers of evil, even Satan himself. In the gospel, he is proclaiming to those entities in the spiritual dimension, his victory. All right? And that is where Peter is going in our passage. Now, let me, uh, like I said, it's about to get weird. Remember, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a little cart moving around, right? Uh, so let me just uh, take you to the first sort of turn. So when you and I hear the word gospel, uh, we have to understand what the word gospel means. In Greek, you would just say it, you, which means good, angelion, which means message, right? It is the good message, the good news, right? That is a great translation of what the word gospel means. You, E-U, is just how you would say good in, in Greek, right? So anyone here have a grandmother named Eudora? Anyone know a Eudora? That name just means good gift. A eulogy is a good message when someone passes away. It's a good word, right? So you means good. Angelon means angel or message, right? That's why angels are messengers. They present us with the message. So the gospel is good news. But what you need to know contextually in the ancient world in which Jesus lived is the Bible does not invent the word message or good message or good news. The word gospel existed beforehand. And when Jesus declares the gospel of the kingdom and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and the apostles start preaching the gospel, they are using a word that everyone understood, meaning good news. Because what the word euangelion or gospel means at its core is actually a royal decree. Okay, it is a royal decree. So in the ancient world, uh, you know, if you think about it this way, let's say uh, you're living in ancient Israel and, you know, you know, I don't know, Caesar, you know, comes along and he takes over your village and the Roman centurions come in and they want to declare that now you are under the rule of Caesar. Well, they would send a messenger, you know, a Roman messenger to your town, and he would perhaps have a big scroll, and he would say, people of fair city of Jacksonville, Israel, I have a message. I have the good news. Good news. Caesar is now your Lord. You will now pay him tribute, and you get to be a part of his empire. This is the good news. Well, you can see, in a sense, I guess that's kind of good news, but for a lot of people, that wouldn't be good news. But in Augustus's or Caesar's eyes, that would have been the good news, the royal decree. So when Christians uh, and Jesus and the apostles come along and say, we are here to preach the good news, the royal decree, the royal decree is Caesar is not Lord. I will never say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And his royal decree is that all peoples from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, all those who confess and bow the knee to King Jesus, all of your sins will be forgiven because this king actually stoops and serves his people. He doesn't come with wrath. He comes offering forgiveness of all of your sins. Be a part of King Jesus's kingdom. This is the royal decree. I mean, think about the way the apostles, when they're preaching the gospel, they sound a little differently than how people sometimes explain the gospel today. Look at Acts 13 with me. I think I have it on the screen. Uh, this is the apostles explaining it to people in Antioch of Pisidia. They say, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. That's royal decree language, right? Let it be known, brothers. Here's the royal decree. 
right? This is formal language. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the gospel is a royal decree that is good news, but it's almost a play on the word, right? It is good news because God is merciful. Most people would think, oh, here comes more of a royal decree, good news. Except the beautiful irony, right, of the Christian gospel is it actually is good news because God himself is our king. And the good news is that he calls all people to repent. Uh, You know, think about how Paul preaches the gospel. Another way to say it, think about how Paul proclaims the royal decree. In Acts 17, uh, Paul is uh, speaking to the people on Mars Hill and, uh, you know, Gentiles. And this is how he explains the royal decree, the good news. Uh, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he does what? Commands. Doesn't invite, he commands. Because he's the king, right? You hear that? God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See how the royal decree is being explained by the apostles? What they're proclaiming is very simply, and it's really the theme of the sermon today, is that Jesus is victorious. Jesus's victory. That's the message of the gospel. And it's true. And we can know Jesus is Lord and is victorious because God raised him from the dead and he is alive and is now seated at the right hand of God, the father. And he is coming one day to judge the world in righteousness, to judge the living and the dead, as the apostles creed explains. So yes, the gospel is about how to be saved. Don't Don't hear what I'm not saying. The gospel, of course, is a decree about how you and I can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. It's good news for everyone who confesses their sin, confesses that Jesus is Lord, takes baptism, accepts his forgiveness, right? Uh, The good news is that we get God's spirit dwelling within us. We never have to fear God's wrath or his rejection. We are adopted into his family. But we also have to understand that in the gospel, in this royal decree, there is a severe warning to those who would reject it. Jesus is coming to one day judge the living and the dead. And we know he's coming back because he has appointed a man, Jesus Christ, to do this. And so there is a side of the gospel that is also a warning not to reject it or else we will spend eternity in hell away from Jesus because we have neglected such a great salvation. So are you hearing the richness of the gospel? We see God's justice because he punishes sin. He will by no means clear the guilty, but it's merciful and gracious because Jesus was willing to die for the guilty. And all you and I have to do is confess Jesus as Lord and repent and we are saved. This is the royal decree. Um, This is doing something to us that many of us today hate doing. It is forcing us to make a decision It's forcing us to choose a side. Will we be on the side of Jesus, the Messiah, or will we be of those who reject him? Friends, this is the gospel decree. Do you know where you stand? Do you respond to the gospel? 
So, so let me just sort of summarize. So like I said, there's not much of an outline to this, but I think the overarching principle, right, is that the gospel is about Jesus' victory. And that's what this passage is, all about Jesus wins in the end, right? So Christ's victory, what does that mean? Well, of course, in Christ's victory, he has accomplished salvation for all those who repent and turn to him. And part of his victory is that he will one day return and put this world to rights. He will bring the kingdom of God, right? So all that to say, let's go back to 1 Peter 3. I know that was a whole lot of information, but let's see if you can sort of track with where we're going. Remember, I love you. And I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to you like this because I expect that you can track with me. And if you don't think you can, just remember this. The book of Hebrews was a sermon given in 60 minutes. And whoever preached Hebrews believed that God's people could track with him for the whole book. The whole book was a sermon. Deuteronomy was a sermon that Moses preached, and he believed God's people could handle it. Raise the bar, right? All right, so let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's see if you can track with what Peter's saying. Right? He's going to preach the gospel. For Christ also suffered on the cross. Right? He suffered all of his betrayal, his rejection, the loneliness, the isolation. He suffered all of that. He suffered unto death on the cross once. He did it once for sins, for our sins, even though Jesus was righteous. He did it for us that he might show his great love for us. Why? Why does Jesus go to the cross? Why does God do this? So that he can be with us. What does Peter say? He did this that he might bring us to God. God wants it to be in a relationship with you, and he is inviting you to be a part of his covenant family. This is the good news of the gospel. Everything can be forgiven. Everything. Everything in the blood of Christ washes away when you repent and confess Jesus. You will be brought to God for eternity. Right? So everybody's tracking, and now ooh, we're about to go down on a really fun slide in our, our little golf cart or whatever we're riding in right now. All right? Because Peter goes on and he says, being put to death in the flesh, that means Jesus died. He really died on the cross, but he was made alive in the spirit. Now, what is that about? Well, let's keep going. Verse 19, it says, in which, that's the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, raise your hand if you thought that was where Peter was going after preaching the gospel. Everybody's tracking with Peter. I get it. Jesus is righteous. I'm unrighteous. He did it so he can be brought to God. And now Jesus has died. You know, he says Jesus died on the cross. But now in the spirit, he goes and proclaims something to the spirits in prison who were alive during the time of Noah, which by the way, there were some righteous people living during the time of Noah, but Jesus is preaching at some point or proclaiming at some point to these spirits in prison. What in the world is going on? All right, so my first suggestion, if you want an outline, my first suggestion is very simply this. Christ's victory guarantees our salvation. Christ's victory is a proclamation of his royal decree that all who believe in him will be saved. But here's where it's going to get kind of weird. Weird to us. And that is Christ's victory also entails Jesus's proclamation that he has defeated the demonic forces, the rulers and the principalities and the authorities of this world. The decree goes, maybe I can put it this way, the decree of Jesus' victory resounds in the physical world and it resounds all through the spiritual dimension, the spiritual realm. 
All right, and that's where Peter's gonna go next. All right, so let's pause and talk about this for just a second because whenever we talk about the spirit realm, there are some people who are like, oh, cool, let's talk about demons and angels and stuff. And then there's some people who are like, oh man, I don't believe this stuff. This stuff is weird, right? And there's, uh, you know, dangers on both sides, right? I mean, they really are, there really are demonic forces. There are angels. There is a spiritual dimension to this world. The Old Testament and the New Testament all testify to it. But we also don't want to become so obsessed with it uh, that we get, we get out of balance. The Bible never sits down and explains, you know, systematically all of these things. It just sort of references them not to become a source of fascination, but neither should it be a source of denial, right? So what's going on? Well, remember, this is like one of the hardest passages, uh, you know, that there, there probably is in the Bible. But um, when Jesus dies on the cross, consistently throughout the New Testament, there is a focus that Jesus is offering salvation to people. And there is also a focus that Jesus is defeating the evil forces of this world. Okay? And that's not just here in Peter. There are times in the Bible that this will be brought up and we just kind of are like, well, that was weird. I don't understand that part. Let me give you an example. It's like when, when Paul's explaining the power of Jesus on the cross, Notice where he goes next. All right, so many of you know Colossians 2, but very few people know Colossians 2 and how it ends, right? Okay, so let's see if you know this passage. And and this is Colossians 2. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. There's the gospel. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Right? We had a record of debt. Jesus nailed it to the cross. We get that part of the gospel. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. I like that part of the gospel. But notice where Paul goes next. He disarmed the rulers and the principalities and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What? <laughs> I was with you when it came to the gospel of my salvation, but why in the very next breath does Paul turn and say, also what he was doing was not only canceling our record of debt, but disarming the rulers and principalities and authorities of this world, triumphing over them in Christ. Ephesians 1.21 makes the same point, but I won't read it to you. You can go home and read it. Uh, so all that to say, uh, going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus' victory means that he's brought us to God through faith. But Jesus' victory on the cross also shows us that Jesus is proclaiming his victory over sin through his death to the demonic forces of this world. All of those things that the New Testament calls the rulers and the principalities of this world. And that's who he is proclaiming to. So if you look at 1 Peter three nineteen and 20, Let's go back to our passage. Let's see if you're tracking with me. In 1 Peter 3, 18, right, we get the gospel. But then Peter does what many passages in the New Testament do. He says there is Christ's substitution, his substitutionary death, but there's also this victory over the forces of evil. When Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
So what in the world? Who are the spirits in prison? And when did they disobey during the days of Noah? Well, remember, the, uh, you know, this is a hard passage. There's a bunch of different directions people have taken. Uh, Martin Luther, you know, that great German reformer, uh, when he was uh, writing about this passage, Luther even said, a wonderful text it is, and more obscure passages, perhaps, is a more obscure passage than perhaps anything else in the New Testament. So, I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it. <laughs> that's Martin Luther. So, uh, Luther says, I don't know, I don't know. And that's crazy, because Luther had an opinion on, like, everything. And when it comes to this passage, he basically says, I don't know. Even John Piper, I, w- I went back and I was like, what did Piper say about this? Well, even John Piper's like, I don't really know what's going on. Uh, but I think the hesitancy for many people is we don't want to talk about the spiritual realm with any degree of uh, seriousness, with any degree of actually believing this stuff. Because actually, I think what's happening is Jesus is proclaiming to spirits in prison in the spiritual realm that he is victorious even though he died. So let me explain sort of uh, what I think is going on and then uh, let's see if you can track with me. So... 1 Peter is very similar in content and topic to the book 2 Peter. It's written by the same guy. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, he talks about angels who disobeyed God. And God has kept them in gloomy darkness and in chains. It's kind of an interesting idea. 1 Peter, we hear that there are spirits in prison. And this, does not, this is not referring, uh, spirits right there, does not refer to humans. Nowhere in the New Testament are people called spirits. Uh, the only time this word would be used for a human is in the book of Hebrews, but it's qualified as something different. Anytime the word spirits is used in the New Testament, it always means angelic or divine or whatever you want to call those beings that exist in the spiritual realm. So these spirits are somehow entities within the spiritual realm. There's not, this is not Jesus going down to hell and preaching the gospel to people who died before Jesus. Because spirits there cannot mean people. It has to mean entities. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about how God has punished angels for, di- for their disobedience and has kept them in gloomy darkness. The book of Jude also which you're going to read this week if you read the Ephraim Co-op, which, wink, wink, I hope you do. The book of Jude is also linked to the book of First and Second Peter. They share a lot of the same language. Jude also talks about angels who did not stay in their proper dwelling, but despised God's authority and committed sin. And then Jude goes on and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, And he says, both the angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual sin going after unnatural flesh. So all that to say, what's going on in 1 Peter, what's going on in 2 Peter, and what's going on in Jude is when did angels, spiritual realm entities, commit some kind of sexual sin? Some kind of sin that was unnatural, And when did they despise God's authority? And then when did he ever condemn them to gloomy darkness and in chains? Well, again, this is the hardest passage in the Bible. I could easily be wrong. But most scholars today, most scholars, whether it's Karen Jobes, whether it's Dan Doriani, or whether it's John Corson, they all agree that what this is referencing is a book called First Enoch. You may have never heard of that book before. It's not in the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's not God's word. But it was around during the time of the apostles. 
and it was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what the book of Enoch depicts is a guy named Enoch, who, guess what, goes to the realm of the dead, to Sheol, and he interacts with angels who had fallen. And in the book of Enoch, what happens is there are these sons of God who impregnate the daughters of men, and they create the Nephilim. Anybody know where I'm going? This is in Genesis 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And so they enter in, in Genesis 6, and they create the Nephilim, which we don't really know what that means in Hebrews, but it is translated by the ancient Jewish scholars who wrote the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. They translated the Nephilim as giants. So in Genesis, what we see is there are apparently fallen angels who create Nephilim with the daughters of men, and then God wipes them out in the flood. So all that to say, I know that's pretty wild. I know that's pretty wild. But in the book of Enoch, what happens is Enoch goes to those fallen angels and they say, can we please, can you plead on our behalf that we can get out of hell, out of the place of the dead, because we're in chains of gloomy darkness. And what Enoch tells them is he says, no, God is still victorious over you and you are continuing to oppose him and he will not release you. So what is going through Peter's mind, I think, I think that's the key word. I think that story is looming large in Peter's mind because what Peter is saying is when Jesus dies, when Jesus actually dies, he's put to death in the flesh. His spirit doesn't die. He enters into the realm of the dead. This is why the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. Jesus actually dies. But that's not because the demonic forces have won. Peter is saying, no, 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 just because Jesus dies does not mean that the demonic forces of evil who oppose God, who have always opposed God, they, they win. That's not the point. The point is when Jesus dies, he proclaims and preaches to them the royal decree that Jesus is victorious over them. And he is ascended to the right hand of God, the father. And now even the demonic forces who are behind all of the evil in this world, who are behind the rulers and the principalities, they are now even subject to King Jesus. Look at verse 22. This is where Peter goes. Jesus, through his resurrection, who has gone up into heaven and is at the right hand of God with what? Angels, authorities, and powers. The spiritual forces behind the nations and the evil of this world are now subjected to him. So, like I said, pretty crazy. If this is making no sense to you, email me this week, or you can go home and you can study. Uh, there's a wonderful scholar named Michael Heiser. I'd encourage you to study him. Or you can just go on YouTube and watch uh, the Bible Project videos about the spiritual realm. They'll explain all of this to you. But like I said, is this absolutely what's going on in Peter? I don't know for sure. Uh, this does not mean that we have to see the book of Enoch as canonical or authoritative. Uh, you know, it would be similar to how maybe you would think of, you know, when we, you and I uh, read John Calvin, you know, we don't take it as scripture, but it has an influence over the way we think, right? You can't, you can't uh, think about predestination and not think about John Calvin, right? When, when Peter thinks about Jesus's victory over the demonic forces, he can't but think of Enoch. He's not saying it's absolutely true in everything it says, but that is their understanding. Does that make sense? Did you hear what I'm saying, what I'm not saying? The book of Enoch is not scripture, 
but it was around during Peter's time and it explains what he's saying. So all that to say, that's a whole bunch of information, right? So how are we supposed to respond, right? You know, um, <laughs> it's funny to me because I, uh, you know, I got Sling a couple weeks ago, you know, Sling TV where you can like stream li like live TV. Anyone have Sling or, you know, Dish Network? I got that a few weeks ago and I got it because I wanted to watch some football games. But then I noticed that they had TV shows that I could watch. And then, you know what like every TV show is about now? The paranormal. Have you noticed that? I go to like the travel channel. I want to learn about Costa Rica. I end up learning about ghosts or I learn about Bigfoot or I learn about some haunting somewhere. It's fascinating to me that as the world approaches more and more belief in the supernatural and the paranormal, Christians, we seem to be doing the opposite and we don't even want to think about this world and we want to deny all this stuff. You know, so it's very interesting that, uh, you know, when it comes to the spiritual stuff in the Bible, we downplay it, and yet the world is hungering to believe in the supernatural and to put their finger on what it is. You see, but the Bible actually explains what really is going on, which is why we need to understand the spiritual realm so that we can tell people what is actually happening and what is behind all of the evil that we see in this world. So all that to say, I wasn't worried about, you know, this sermon because it's just, it's just weird, right? It's interesting, right? It's an interesting topic. But the hard part is, what are we supposed to do with this information? How am I supposed to respond? Well, Peter gives us uh, some answers. Look at verse 21. Uh, in verse 21, Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that's the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, what Peter's doing is he's saying, yeah, he's thinking about that time when the sons of God fell during the days of Noah. And his point is, he says, well, during Noah's lifetime, there were only a few righteous people, even though the world was fallen and messed up and all kind of awful things were going on. And he sees a parallel for Christians and sojourners. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are not many people who are actually following Jesus. But that should not discourage us because God knows how to deliver his people from suffering and from trials. And baptism is a mark that we are making an appeal, a loyalty pledge to the king. I think about Noah. Noah made a pledge in a sense, an appeal to God that he was going to believe God and build the ark. Well, we today make a pledge that we are on Jesus' side, that we are marked by his blood. We are baptized in the name of Jesus. Our baptism is a loyalty cry that we are loyal and saved by King Jesus. Is that making sense? So how, so how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, if that's where Peter goes, uh, let me just finish up with a couple of ways I think this can apply to your life. Um, so how should we respond? You know, Peter goes to baptism. How do we respond? Well, the number one application is what? Be baptized. If you have not been baptized and you profess Jesus, um, you can't get around this passage. Peter says baptism, which now saves you. Now, of course, Peter says, look, it's not about just, you know, the water and, and being washed or removal of dirt, but baptism is a part of obeying Jesus. I mean, when, when the apostles are preaching the gospel in Acts chapter two, and people say, well, what must we do to be saved? What does Peter tell them? Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus, and be baptized. So one application of this passage is if you have not been baptized, now if you believe in Jesus, you want to be on his side, you accept him, be baptized. 
Now, it doesn't save you in the sense that, you know, just because you went down in water, it saves you. Baptism reflects a heart that trusts in the Lord, but it's something that every Christian is called to do, be baptized. Okay, how else does this apply? Well, what are we supposed to do about the spiritual realm stuff? You know, the hierarchies, the angels, right? Well, I know this is weird, but just go there with me for a second, okay? I love you. I love you, and it's weird, okay? In the Bible and in the spiritual realm, it is way more complex than you think it is. Like, if you're a normal person, you don't believe any of it, but somehow you believe in God, but you don't believe any of the spiritual stuff. Most people, most Christians today, we believe in God and Jesus and Satan, and then it's kind of like, all this other stuff, right? It's like kind of mumbly. Like, we know there's good things and bad things. But in the Bible, there's all kind of complexity in the spiritual realm, right? There's God, the Trinity. There's Satan, who is the chief opposer. Uh, they're not equals. You know, it's not, we don't have a dualistic view of life. Uh, you know, Satan is not God's equal. He's just a fallen angel. But in the spiritual realm, there are also things like cherubim, who are around the, the throne of God. There's seraphim. There are archangels, right? Who are, you know, think of it more like an army, right? There are chief guys. There are higher ups, right? There are archangels, Michael and Gabriel. Uh, the Bible talks about the sons of God in Genesis 6 and in Job 1, who are somehow angelic or divine beings, whatever you want to call them, but they seem to have a higher place. Uh, Psalm 82 talks about the sons of God. There's a hierarchy. It's not just angels, demons, Right? And the Bible also says that these powers are behind the rulers and the principalities of the nations. Right? And so the Old Testament will warn you not to sacrifice to Chemosh, your God, or to the Baals. And it'll say things uh, like in the New Testament that Jesus has disarmed the rulers of this world. So we see the physical world, but we know somehow there's a spiritual realm that actually does impact our physical world. And so when I see, you know, everybody on TV looking for paranormal stuff, what it is is there are unbelievers who are being impacted by the spiritual realm, but they don't know what to call it. They don't know what it is, but they know it's there. And the Bible clarifies what those are. So how, okay, so with all the information, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, let me just give you this suggestion. Understand this, friend. Evil is complex. Evil is complex. Following Jesus is simple and clear. Evil is complex. There's rulers, there's principalities, there's demonic forces, there's, you know, Satan. What are all the, evil is complex. Evil is complex. But God's word is always simple. His command is simple. I mean, what's Peter's point? Suffer for doing good. Don't resort to evil. There are rulers, there are principalities, there are all these things that are incredibly complex. But don't get stuck there. Suffer to this you were called. Be loyal to Jesus. I mean, what is the book of Revelation except an explanation that evil is complex? There's a whore of Babylon. There's a dragon. There's all kind of multi-headed beasts with multi-headed eyes. It constantly is changing. The evil is always different. But what's the command of Revelation? Overcome be an overcomer, endure, be faithful to the end. It talks about marks of beasts. It talks about all these complex things and the commands are always simple for God's people. Be loyal, be faithful to the Lord, trust, overcome. There's a complexity of evil. And friends, I think what I am seeing today, at least speaking on the Christian side, is we are dangerously close to becoming obsessed 
with trying to figure out the complexity of evil. Uh, Friends, that is a fruitless journey because evil is more complex than you and I will ever understand. We are just dipping our toe into the spiritual realm. And that's where really evil is. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't do battle against flesh and blood. We do battle against the rulers of the principalities of this world. Evil is complex. But your, your job, my job is to follow Jesus. And that is simple. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's clear and it's simple. Uh, let me just finish with this example. I know I've gone on a long time, but I think you can handle it. You know, when I think about this idea that Peter understands this complex spiritual realm with all of these evil forces that are behind all of these things that are happening in his physical world, you know, how do you respond? Well, Peter says in verse 17, this is his application. Jesus is victorious, right? Jesus' victory is the thing you need to know about. Jesus declares your salvation and his defeat over all these rulers. Therefore, it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. You know, if you think about Peter and Peter's life, you know, when Jesus was being arrested and he was going to be led to the cross, what does Peter do before he abandons Jesus? You know, what, do you remember what he does? What does Peter do? He's like, shink! He grabs his sword. And then what does he do? He cuts off Malchus's ear. Was he aiming for his ear? He was a fisherman. He's not a soldier. He was aiming for the dude's head, I think. <laughs> Unless he thought his ear was really ugly. I think what's most likely is Peter. Peter is seeing the complexity of evil in this world. He is up against the rulers and the principalities, the evil forces that are going to put Jesus to death. And Peter says, you know what I need to do? I need to bring in, I need to save Jesus. I need to bring the kingdom of God and I need to use violence to do it. To make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, Jesus. Step aside. I'll protect you. I will fight for your kingdom with my sword. And what does Jesus do? I know this is spiritual woo-woo stuff with miracles, but this stuff is true. Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on his head and tells Peter to put the sword up. Evil is complex. The way of the cross is simple. Peter, you need to suffer for doing good. Continue entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. Know that Jesus is victorious. Even when he's being led to the cross, Jesus is victorious. Even when he died, he was victorious. Uh, Friends, that's the invitation to think about Jesus' victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are marked as your people. Lord, that we have been baptized in your name. And Father, we pray for those who uh, don't know you yet, that Lord, your word would speak a word of truth. Uh, Father, thank you that your son is victorious over all of the evil in this world and that we can trust him. Father, I pray that each one of us, uh, like Peter, would put away our swords and continue entrusting you. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, for the next uh, months and years to come in our country, Lord, that we would suffer for doing good and not evil that we would follow the way of Jesus. Uh, And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us power. Amen.